Welcome to Strong Runner Chick Radio, a leading online community where our goal is to educate, empower, and connect female distance runners across the world. We believe in healthy running, fueling, and embracing our strength as female distance runners inside and out. Through interviews with top professional, collegiate, and master's level runners, leading dietitians, coaches, sports psychologists, and runners of all shapes and sizes, we hope to spread the message that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to distance running. Now, let's get to the show. Hello, Strong Runner Chicks. Welcome to another episode of SRC Radio. This is Kelsey here, and unfortunately, Megan is unable to join us. Um, She is quite busy after running the Boston Marathon this past Monday, but she's also at work, so unfortunately, she won't be able to join us today. But I do have a very special guest, excuse me, um, Jacqueline. Welcome. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. We are very, very happy to have you. So um, before we get into the thick of things, let me just quickly introduce you to our guests. Jacqueline Gilbert grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, running along the back roads in the Amish countryside. She ran Division I cross country and track and field at Yale, where she majored in English and French. After working in book publishing for several years, she earned her MFA from Sarah Lawrence University. She currently holds a research fellowship from the New York Public Library, and her stories and essays have appeared or are forthcoming from Post, Post Road Magazine, Tin House, Lit Hub, Long Reads, and elsewhere. Late Air, her first novel, re- released from Little A in November. Welcome again, Jacqueline. Thank you. Um, so it says that uh, you are a fe- research fellow at New York Public Library. Are you, is that where you currently live in New York City? Yeah, well, I live, I live, yeah, I live in New York City. I'm not in Manhattan proper, but I'm in Brooklyn. Um, so it's a little bit of a commute into the library, but it's not bad. <laughs> okay, nice. Glad to hear. I was only in New York. Uh, the last time I was there was in 2016. And it was really magical to me. Like I've never really spent much time there and I was there to run the marathon. So it was kind of one of those beautiful experiences for me, but I've heard otherwise if you live there often. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a lot. It's intense, but there is a really strong running community there, which which is great. Yeah. Um, um, I'm actually part of the Central Park Track Club, which uh, trains in the in Central Park. So um, if you're ever training for something like New York or another race, it's really great because there's just so many people to run with. Yeah. So. Oh, I can imagine. What a great place to train too. I bet there are a lot of tourists, but also a really nice yeah. place to train. <laughs> yeah, a lot of interesting smells and tourists, but. Yeah. It's, a very contained loop, which is nice, yes. and there's a lot of like, there's a lot of energy. So oh, very nice. Um, well, Jacqueline, we always start off our podcast um, with the question, "How did you get your start in running?" And you can take this any way you'd like. Okay, yeah, that's um, that's an interesting question for me because I don't know if my path to running was traditional, if there is even a traditional path. But um, I started running around the age of thirteen. Um, uh, in Ocean City, New Jersey. Uh, my dad, after my parents divorced, my dad moved there and my stepmom got really into running. Um, and, um, sometimes, you know, I, I'd have some idle time on the weekends there. So I just needed something to do. And, um, I started running my stepmom up and down the boardwalk. It was about a five mile distance. And I just found this kind of secret love affair with it, I guess, where, you know, I found it so painful. I'll never forget the first two and a half miles. Like I thought I'll never, ever get to the end of the boardwalk. <laughs> and then, um, and then, you know, having turned around to, to do it over again, I actually feel like the second half was in some ways easier because I was 
excuse for the pain. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this like thing clicked in me, like I'd like to do this again. And um, so I really got into it. But I think that it's, well, I guess I, so after that, I, um, before I go into that, after that, I ended up running middle school cross country, I think it was. And um, I didn't have a really traditional path in that way either because I played tennis in the fall. So through high school, I actually played tennis every fall, and then I ran track in the spring. But um, I always ran in the summers, I guess, to stay in shape. And um, and somehow my times were good enough to allow me to run in college. Mm. But um, yeah, I guess one thing I, I was I was going to add though before <laughs> is that um, when when I ran when I began running at such a long age, I started running kind of in my father's absence because he wasn't around a lot. So. I think it was out of a need for that validation. Um, so I think like in terms of maybe some of the things that we talk about today, I was, I just do think it's interesting how our identities as runners and athletes can sometimes Mm. be a combination of a physical need and desire. And also, you know, the, that sense of being seen by others and, and needing that validation. So, Mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of how my my journey evolves mm-hmm. a little bit out of order there, but yeah, no, that's great. And thank you for being so honest about it. I actually really like your remark that you said about running sometimes being this kind of, um, this area where people can kind of, you know, find their own and find like a tribe in a way and feel like a belonging or maybe not even maybe feel like they have to do something, um, like manipulate something about themselves to belong to this kind of cultish group, if you wanted to say it that way. And not every running group is like that, but some are. And so, um, I find it very interesting that there was this physical need and desire that you speak of, um, that sometimes running can fulfill, um, which can be both helpful in some ways and also hurtful I would imagine yeah exactly I think it's that constant conflict between the inner and the outer because you know you have the inner side which maybe tells you um why you're doing it in a way but it's not it's not always it's not always apparent sometimes yeah the outside things get mixed Mm -hmm. in like you know um, body image or um race times and all these other things that in some ways we might need to set goals but if it's I think pushed too far it can displace kind of that inner relationship so that's something that I'm always thinking about like how do I bring it back to kind of like why am I doing this and um what brings me joy really in the process instead of just the results Mm. so Mm. yeah that's a great point and um what does bring you joy what does bring you joy in, in in running well, I think I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm alone. I doubt I'm alone in this, but um, I really long for that feeling when, um, you know, nothing else seems to really matter anymore, where I'm just completely lost in, in almost a trance-like state, um, a flow state that um, that really calms me. And I, mm-hmm. I, there is no longer this voice in my head that's telling me, you know, how far I have to go or how long I've been going, but I'm, I'm really present. Um and that can come through racing because of the intensity and just the physical pain, because mm. I think you have to attach from it to, to push yourself. But I think um, one of the things though, that I find more enjoyable than that really is just going for long runs and not thinking about the pace and just mm. and feeling it out because then, then my mind can really wander and, um, and eventually I can get to that rhythm that feels natural and it's not, it's not necessarily painful like it might be in a race. So. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing. I think a lot of our listeners can definitely relate to that. Um, 
So I guess I'm, um, you mentioned before that you ran um, at, in college and your times got you to run in college. So I'm wondering if you might want to speak a little bit about that. Um, uh, you ran at Yale University, which is a very prestigious school. It's a divisions one school in addition to that. Um, and I remember reading over kind of a little bit in your bio about how balancing academics and athletics was very hard and um, very pressure filled. So I'm wondering if you might want to speak a little bit to that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something that, um, you know, has been a, a, a big, I guess, part of my journey as a writer um, and and an athlete, um, because when I, I was very surprised that I, that I was deemed, you know, I guess, I was deemed you know, acceptable in, that, in some ways to run at that, at the Division One level, um, because I, I didn't have a lot of you know, no one in my family had ever run competitively before. And I, and I, um, I didn't have the fastest times, but I guess, you know, my the coach that recruited me saw that I had a lot of potential because I didn't have a ton of miles under me. Um, but I, I think I just felt like I didn't follow a path that the other girls that I was running with had followed, you know, where they'd been, they'd been training a lot more intensely. And a lot of them, a lot of my teammates, my first year um, at Yale were like, had gone to top private schools and I'd also come from a public school in Pennsylvania, which was a good school, but it, but I just felt a little bit like an imposter. I mean, I had imposter syndrome basically. Mm. So I had this, this terrifying fear all the time that I was going to fail out, which I think put me into a fight or flight mode. Um, and it, and it did me, you know, it actually worked to my advantage in the beginning, um, because I was, I had felt, had so much pressure that, um, I could almost very easily get out of my body and, and just compete. Um, but, and I actually, and I performed very well academically, but then, but then I, I realized kind of by, you know, sophomore year that there, there's a limit to that. And, um, you know, physically I started to burn out and I didn't really know how to cope with the pressure um, because I had to deal with it at some point. Uh, and the biggest thing that forced me to deal with it was my relationship to my father, um, because he suffers from an addiction. So, um, and our relationship pretty much ended then because of some demands that he'd asked of me that I couldn't fulfill. So that kind of, uh, I guess, triggering moment also made the pressure really hard. Uh, so it was kind of hard for me to separate my feelings of inadequacy with a larger pain and grief, really, I was starting to go through um, in college. And I think the years after that have really been about trying to piece it all together in my writing and figure out, um, yeah, what is my relationship to myself and my body and, and running that's independent of, of these, these pressures <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that put me into that fight or flight mode, basically, because mm -hmm. I'd been operating like that for a long time. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine that flight and fight or flight mode, excuse me, is very, you're always on edge. It's like that, yeah, that feeling yeah, and it's exhausting. Good. Yeah, it's so exhausting. So I can imagine how, how, <laughs> for lack of a better word, how exhausting it was for you to really just kind of be on edge all the time and wanting to, you know, perform well academically and for your father, even it sounds like maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, or like, um, athletically so so there's a lot that goes with it and, and you mentioned at the end of your statement there how your writing has kind of helped you kind of think more about um what you went through um 
And so you're, I, I want to hear a little bit more if you'd be willing to share about your novel Late Air, because I think it speaks a little bit about kind of what you went through and how you were able to, you know, write about your, what, yeah, what you went through as a, as a child and in, in college. Yeah, I mean, um, the novel process was, was an interesting one because I didn't come at it, you know, from, from the point of view of me. Like, let's say, gotcha. you know, there's, it's not... Um, it's not really, it's not from the point of view of a, of a college runner. It's actually from a, a male coach in his 60s mm-hmm. um, who I would actually, you know, if you want to psychoanalyze it, it's, it's a father type figure gotcha. that um, with like a, you know, he's, a, he's basically internalized the misogyny that I internalized, I think, in my life from my father, from my father because he has very, very set views on, on what, who, who women should be and a lot of them tend to be very physical ideas and also ideas about like, you know, you're, you as a woman, you're best suited to work at home, you're to, to stay at home or, um, so the, the, the coach isn't that extreme in that, in that way necessarily, but he definitely internalized, um, some of, I think this fear, fear that I had, um, of, I guess, pleasing this, this idea of this, of a paternal figure, mm. um, so it's a displaced kind of character or psychology. But basically what does happen in the book is that a young, a, the, a, um, a, soft, a, a sophomore who's this, you know, this, this star who has a tremendous potential is hit by a um, stray golf ball on the golf course where she's training. Mm. And she's hit in the head um, and knocked out. And it's, her injury is severe. Um, and I think that that, you know, that moment when I really look at it was what does point back to my own experience in college where um, I often had thoughts of like, well, what if something just took me out? Like I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't have to do this anymore because I felt so much pressure all of the time. Um, and I think I'm kind of exploring that idea of, of this almost like absence of, of self that I felt um, because the, the girl, you can see that she's very quiet. Um, she's very stoic. And she kind of just does everything that she's told to do. But you don't get a lot of that inner life. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that the, the book is definitely commenting on different aspects of of that, you know, between, on the one hand, the silence, like the silent self that I felt like happened when I was just trying to get through it. And then there's almost kind of a mean paternal voice that I was, that I had also um, buried through the coach and what's, what happens in the novel though is the coach has to come to terms with his own voice. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it, cause it's, because it's not just a self-destruct, it's not just destructive to his runners. It's really destructive to him himself because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't allow him to process grief, mm-hmm. uh, especially from his own past. So, so I don't know if, if I'm, I'm going off a little bit tangentially about on this, but I think it's definitely exploring binaries and how, how they're they're bad for both sides you know they're bad mm-hmm. for men and women um mm-hmm. and sometimes i think as women we might even i realized internalize both sides right like right. um the side that's like you know i don't want to i don't want to be ultra feminine and in some ways because i could be seen as weak even though that's not true but that could be one extreme and then um and then you know as a man to if I, um, if I'm, if I embrace my male side as a woman, then I'm really tough, but that doesn't give me any room to make myself vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So it kind of shows that, you know, it's just, it's not so much 
whether it's male or female, it's just living your life in these extremes that mm. are so damaging to the self. So, yeah. um, yeah. So I think that I'm looking at that, that contradiction because there's this male coach and this young female athlete, but mm. I'm thinking about these things a lot right now because it's because of, um, I don't know. I think I just am. So, yeah. 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 No, I just got in a conversation with someone about this the other day and, and, um, the, actually through doing research on kind of your book and, and reading a little bit more into some articles that you shared with me that you had written, um, reading kind of just speaking more and voicing about these binaries and how they're kind of trapping in some ways. It's, it's yeah. very, like you said, black and white and there's no gray. It's like you right. one way or the other, and then all this gray in between and the people who are gray, it's just like, it's hard to see them sometimes because you see one or the other. Or, you know, your first judgment is a black or gray judgment without actually getting to know, or not yours, excuse me, people's, or maybe mine sometimes, I should say, is black and white. And then you forget to know the person as a whole because you think of a binary about them, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm, And yeah, it's it's a really challenging thing to navigate, especially in the running world. Um, Right. So so I want to commend you first off for writing a book that kind of dialogues this a little bit because it's, it's a tricky thing or I can imagine it was a tricky thing to write about. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't even know I was really writing about it. Because, <laughs> Fair enough. Know, Cause it's fiction, you know, and then, and then the painful part was revising it and saying, Oh my God, this is, this is my life. Like what, how can you think that you're just writing these characters? Because of right. course they're part of how you see the world or, or old parts of yourself that you're trying to shed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I think I am always thinking about that idea, like we brought up like with the running world and being an athlete, because, you know, we live in a, when you, when you are training for something, it's really hard not to see the world in black and white, right? Like, yeah. let's say you have a goal time, you either meet that time or you don't meet it mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and some people, you know, I know some athletes are very strict about that. Like they either, they either, it's either a success or it's a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I, I personally have realized I can't live my life that way because it, while when the highs are high, that's great, but the lows are, are too low. And mm-hmm. I really, you know, I think the gray in, in the athlete world is learning just to take it each day as it comes and, and to also kind of commend yourself just for getting out there, you know, it's, yes. especially, you know, when you're not 18 anymore, things are a lot harder mm-hmm. <laughs> physically. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, as I was writing this, I realized, wow, I'm living, I've been living my life. Like, it's not just about these topics that I'm exploring to the characters. I myself have actually, I'm still living my life with these really rigid ideas about mm. self-worth. Like, either, you know, I'm, this makes me good or this makes me bad. And really, really, there's, there's a very big gray area. And that's where I think you can, that's where you can tap into a compassionate voice. But it, mm. it's hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thank you for voicing that. It is really hard. It's hard to tap into that that self compassionate voice because it's it's very quiet, you know. Yeah. And that inner critic is so loud, and it's really just kind of, for me at least, it hones in on over and over again. And you're kind of just like, what the heck? Yeah. yeah. Um. So I. And I also appreciate you saying that you like to live your your life a little bit in the gray area. Um because I feel very similarly, like if I stray too far in, in black or I stray too far in white, then it's just very extreme. And sometimes I sit there and it's not good for me. So I'm learning to sit in the gray. Um, and I'm actually wondering, um, do you have any advice for sitting in the gray? Like what, what has helped you recognize that, you know, it's not good for you to sit in black and white? 
Well, I think I think this, you know, the challenge really is being present, and it's it's a kind of sometimes I think it's a word that I know I felt before I started really looking into it. I kind of felt like it was overused. Like live in the present. Okay, sure. Like that. You yeah. Know, this would be easy. But it's incredibly hard um, because our mind is, at least my mind, I know in any moment is, it really does flee into the future of what I have to do. And, and in some, in other moments it's, it dwells on the past um, of what I wish I'd done better or, or what I am longing for really. Um, but I realized, yeah, to sit in the gray is to actually like con- continually observe my own thoughts um, and to step to not just react to them and like continue to go there, but to kind of stop them and say, okay, that's true, but I don't, you know, I'm not internalizing that right now. And then focus on something else, you know, like, you know, maybe there's a bird that's pecking, that's flying by a window, <laughs> or like, there's this bird that keeps, um, keeps like keeps tapping at the glass in, in the window which has actually been really interesting for me today because <laughs> it's like how it's made me kind of go back to what it's doing and wonder about it and yeah. that takes me away from myself and um and I think creates more space for mm-hmm. for happy for healthier thoughts mm-hmm. because it's the compulsive thoughts that will consume you and there's actually I kind of realize I don't think there's any end to them yeah like they just feed off each other it's like well, if you do this, then you have to do this, but then you have to do that and that and that, and it, it never ends. So um, it's, I think it takes even more strength to take a step back and say, oh, but look at this, what's, what's happening, <laughs> you know? Or, yes. <laughs> or this is a delicious thing that I just had, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so hard. I mean, and, and sometimes too, like, I think the busy you are, it's so easy to forget that you can do that, that that's an yes. option mm-hmm. to, to actually step back, mm-hmm. so... I think a lot of people forget too that being present is a choice. You know, you yeah. have to actively participate in it. Um, and I think the other thing too is, is there's a dialectic here as well, where you know, at one point in time, you're like, oh, I have these really hard ruminating thoughts, and I'm also okay. You know, yeah. like there, there's like this dialectic that we sometimes have to bring forward of like recognizing. Yeah, judgmental. Yeah, yeah. So where you have these judgmental thoughts and like actually being present enough to recognize I'm having judgmental thoughts right now, but and I'm in a safe space. I'm comfortable. I'm okay. Like, you know, so it's bringing this dialectic of noticing both things, not judging them, not saying one is better than the other, but just having presence of knowing, oh, here are these things. Here's what's going on in my life. So thank you for, for speaking about that because I think, like you said, a lot of people hear the the notion of be present and they're like, well, I am being present, but you know, they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't know how, you know, they don't know exactly what that means or like that it actually takes work sometimes. Yeah. Or I think I know some people that are just sort of like, Oh, that person's just awesome. They're great at being present. And I'm like, well, you can do that too. I mean, that person has, has, has made a choice to let go of small things in their life and like, you know, seize the moment and um yeah you're right it's t- it's totally a choice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think I think yeah like, like that whole self-judgment thing when you're having thoughts that's when I know that's when I start to like that's mm-hmm. when I get into my worst is when I'm I start saying to myself you're doing it again you're not you're being yep. you're doing this or that and then I almost want to give up because because yeah. it just seems too hard to change but um yeah. but yeah I think even accepting that you're judgmental of your own <laughs> Those thoughts is also a part of it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, that makes total sense. And um, yeah, no, I, I, I 
completely agree with that. It's just kind of those judgmental thoughts are, unfortunately, they're there. And then for me as well, they, they cause me to spiral sometimes. And then I keep going and like ruminating on these thoughts and it's hard. But um, I appreciate your, you speaking about that because it is a really impactful thing that happens and it's it's hard to, to go through um i think we got on this this conversation speaking about binaries um, oh, yeah. and I, think, I think that's how we started it and i kind of wanted to bring it back and circle back to the idea of binaries in the running world because i think they're very prevalent and i think they impact a lot of individuals who are part of the the, the running world and running community so um i kind of wanted to just to see like what binaries have you seen in your, you know, transformation from collegiate running to kind of post-collegiate running and how have they impacted you or, you know, what do you think of them as maybe impacting society or the running community as a whole? Well, yeah, I think, you know, binaries, yeah, to put it simply are, if I always just think of it as two extremes or two, two ends of a spectrum that don't really they, it's like this weird thing where they don't allow each other to coexist, but yet they always coexist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and maybe in the running community, it's these, these, these extreme, this, there's extreme imaging in a way of what it means to be a fast runner. I, I know I, I've struggled with it. Um, mm-hmm. of like there's this one body type that, you know, like, you know, I picture like Shalane Flanagan or, you know, and I, I know that she's like a very healthy runner. Mm. And so I'm not trying to um, say that she's like the wrong image for that mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. um just like a very lean chiseled look and also lightness is kind of I think one extreme that we associate but really you know when I look at it being a runner is is being an athlete and athletes come in all shapes and sizes um mm-hmm. and you know I think this you know just ha- like having room for I guess I'm trying to think of how that would be a binary because the other side of it, of, of somebody like Shalane might be a very, maybe a mus- a very, very muscular sprinter who, mm-hmm. who isn't that exact body type. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just like this other, and she's muscular, but maybe it's like a different image of what mm-hmm. you what it is to be a runner. Um, but it's, but when you look at it, if you look across the board, runners really are like all different types. There's a lot mm-hmm. of gray area and, mm-hmm. and sort of, what your body is going to be like and what you need as, as an individual runner and individual mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of other binaries that would deal with training. Mm. You know, maybe it's um, high mileage versus low mileage. Those are two extremes. <laughs> I was um, just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Like some people, like I have a friend who's really in, she was into marathons. Now she won't, you know, run more than five miles and everything she does has to be really, um, you know, it's more, she's doing more intense speed training, mm-hmm. but it's, an, I always find it interesting. Sometimes it surprises you. Like if you take, if you just sort of don't think of it that way and kind mm-hmm. of just mix things up as you feel yeah. day by day, or just do a little bit of each, like it's usually that combination just because you're, you're being more open and flexible that, mm-hmm. that, that helps to make the gains. It's not, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, we have all kinds of extremes about stretching and <laughs> strengthening too that yeah well um, I don't know if they're always opposite and opposing but there's a lot to navigate of like well what's going to make me the best runner I can be you know mm-hmm. um, and that's and that's for most people the ultimate goal how can I be the best it's not yeah. like how can I be like 
like the best, sometimes it, and this is hard. It's sometimes not always, how can I be the best to my body or the best to my mind? It's how can I be the best runner? And sometimes that mind shift is like really hard for people too. And I, I almost wonder if that's like a binary. There's like no like, end to it. You exactly. Know, like, there's not enough hours in a day. I mean, if you wanted to do everything that Instagram told you to do, you would, you know, you'd be on, you'd be on foam roller balls and, you know, bozy balls and all this other stuff all day long. You'd be in the weight room doing extra classes, doing yoga and running and mixing in feed because it's a very, it's a very loose thing, you know, like yeah. in certain sports, you yeah. have drills, but with this, it's like so many different aspects of your body that could define core stability yeah. strength and speed. So I think I, I find I have to kind of just like say it's enough just to do one of those things one day, not try yeah. to do all of those things because unless you have six hours a day and you can and actually train like a, a professional athlete, I don't think it's sustainable. Yeah. It's very your, true. Your health and your body. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. I actually envision someone doing all the things you're saying, wearing like a camelback backpack with like a water <laughs> strap, like coming up it's to like New York city. If you hung out in New York city, like sometimes I run over the, um, well, I like running over the Williamsburg bridge, but you just see people just constantly trying to multitask, like yeah. doing that after, like there was a guy I knew that would go to the track, run with his camel back to the Equinox gym, work out the Equinox, you know, then oh my gosh. Like, class, go home. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, sure. You can <laughs> like really do that, but you also need to have a really great grocery budget. Yeah. <laughs> And that's so true. And then I also wonder too, if that is your goal to be like the best runner you can be, what things are you sacrificing for that to happen? Yeah, your balance. Yeah. yeah. I think well, living in the gray to me too is also doing things that aren't always, you know, postable on Instagram. I don't know why I'm thinking. Yeah. Instagram. No, that's but you know, like spending time with my husband and my dog and um, you know, that you know, I I'm actually newly expecting, um, and I'm really thinking about that. Like, I want to have time to enjoy life with my child, who I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea who this person's going to be yet, and what they're, what you know. I do know it's a boy, so I don't know what he's going to need. Um, Congratulations! <laughs> I've got to be open, right, to the unknown, yeah. which yeah. is going to be really, really hard because I've I like to predict my day. Um, but I already, I can tell, okay, I really can't predict how my body feels, what it needs. It's changing so fast. Mm. Um, so like getting away from that extreme mindset and running is, is I think a really, really important practice right now. Yeah. Even though there's a side of me that keeps thinking, you know, like I, 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 I was actually gonna, I was, um, I was all ready to run the Boston marathon when I found out. So I, I didn't, you know, I just couldn't do it. I just yeah. couldn't couldn't picture risking that at this stage in it. Um, but I kept, you know, looking at pictures and thinking you could have done it, you know, why didn't you? So it's, it's a hard battle to actually like just accept sometimes that you, um, you can't always live up to this. I don't know, this dream vision of what you think you're going to do with your running career or your running, your passion for it. Yeah. So Mm. And I think that speaks a lot to like the transformative process of life too, you know, like yeah. as your life transforms, your running or your relationships or, or whatever is going to transform too. And it's changing. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, it's hard because I know I personally am a control freak and I like can, it's hard for me not to have a scheduled day, not to have like, this is what I want to do all the time, you know, and <laughs> living in that gray area means like, 
I don't know what's going to happen in the next hour. You know, I don't know how I'm going to feel in the next hour. And, and that's sometimes really tricky to like sit with, but um, it's almost creating space for that unknown and like sitting in it, you know, exactly. like really yeah. like hanging out there. Yeah. And actually I'm, I try to think of it as the unknown could actually be an amazing opportunity if I, like if I see that space instead of saying, what do I do? What do I do to prevent it or fill it? Right. Is actually say like, this is an opportunity for me to do something I've never done before. Like maybe it's like a random walk or something that you might actually feel guilty for doing, but mm -hmm. there's something about that that I think does change you over time. Just like making mm -hmm. that a choice to step into it. Um, and, you know, and then, yeah, like something like pregnancy, I, I think that it's all about that. So I'm, you know, I've, I keep thinking, oh, I wish I was practicing. I wish I'd been practicing it even more up to this because mm. it's really asking me to sit in it like all the time. Yeah. And yeah. It's not fun. And my inner critic is a lot har harsher because it doesn't know what to do yeah. about it. You know, yeah. and at this, we talked a little bit about this, but how do you, how do you handle your inner critic, especially inner critic, especially, especially now? Um, is it just sitting with those thoughts and like recognizing like there are my inner critic thoughts, like I hear them, but acting opposite or are you fact checking yeah. in the sense of like, okay, my inner critic wants this, but actually I feel this way, like, and I'm going to do how I feel. Like, how does, how does that work for you? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's seeing it as a dialogue in whatever way so it could be just um speaking to it like like you said you know I hear you but I'm not doing that um I I started keeping a journal like a specific pregnancy journal that's really helping me because it, that actually helps me take away all the floating anxiety that I that I know is there but repeats over and over again but something about actually reining it in and putting it down I can see it and say oh and then I can actually like I I, I felt a lot better yesterday because I, I felt like I, I arrived at something like mm -hmm. clarity on things that were behind it because I realized that most of the anxiety was just surface anxiety and that by writing it I could see what my deeper fears were you know mm -hmm. um and then just to put that down it kind of stopped the vicious cycle of the critic coming out out of the fear and the mm -hmm. doubt um so I think the writing helps and I mean, running, I, it really does help. The only thing with me with right now is like I, <laughs> I'm sucking for wind every time I run because I have, um, you know, I've had, things are moving around. So <laughs> I'm not finding that quite as mindful as I would like right now, but I've been taking more walks. So nice. I think walks can be really good too. Mm. It's not the same high as running, but that's another opportunity to redirect because you have to slow down.